Hey, good morning, Genesis Church. If you're new or visiting, my name's Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here, and we're glad to be with you today as we worship Jesus together. Um, we would love to connect with you if you are new or visiting, so find me or Michael or one of our staff members or stop by the welcome area out here. But first, I want to start and just uh, pray together. I want to ask for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we open up God's Word together. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to come together today to study from your word, to read from your word, and to learn. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open up your word to us. Uh, we need you. We've talked about that this morning. We're needy, and we need you specifically. So Holy Spirit, will you guide us? Will you lead us? Will you teach us? And will you help us to walk away, uh, not just knowing something, but walk away changed, uh, walk away in a new way to depend on you, walk away um, uh, wanting to follow you in a different way, in a new way, Jesus. We love you, and it's in the, uh, your name that we pray. Amen. So a few weeks ago, uh, I read a memoir by a guy, uh, written by a guy named Paul Hewson. Now, you probably don't know who Paul Hewson is, but I bet you know his stage name, Bono, as in the lead singer of the epic rock band U2. And if you're like, I didn't know Paul Hewson, I don't know Bono, I don't know U2, I don't know what to tell you. You've been missing out on some of the world's best music for the last 40 plus years. And so obviously, clearly I'm a big fan. And so I, was, I thought this is gonna be really cool to learn like what it's like to live as a rock star. What's this guy's life been like? And the fascinating thing throughout the book, he talks about relationships with his mom, Iris, and his dad, Bob, his brother, his bandmates, his wife, Allie, their kids. I mean, he, he weaves relationships throughout. And he talks about some famous relationships that he had with Frank Sinatra and uh, Johnny Cash, as well as former U.S. presidents Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Barack Obama. I mean, this guy lived a fascinating life, right? He's a rock star. He's been all kinds of places. He has a huge adoring fan base. And so if you were a rock star and you were writing a memoir, you'd write about all those cool things, right? Would you include something that everybody's like, oh gosh, why would you include that? Well, Bono did. He writes about a phone call that he received from his dad about 20 years ago. His, his dad, Bob, called to tell him. He said, I just, I just want to let you know that your cousin, Scott Rankin, that you love so much, he is not your cousin. He's actually your half-brother. Do the math. Bono's dad was calling to say, hey, I just need to let you know that at some point in the past, I had an affair with your Aunt Barbara, your mom's sister, right? Yeah, some of you are like, oh, yeah, I don't know why I included it in the book. I wouldn't. I was like, I'm cool. I'm famous. I traveled all these places. My family's a mess, right? It makes him sound like he's from the hills of Kentucky. <laughs> my my in-laws are from Kentucky. I can say that. It's okay. It's okay. But here's the real lesson. Here's the big lesson I learned. It doesn't really matter how rich and famous you are. It doesn't matter how much money you acquire. It doesn't matter how many famous friends you have, how many continents you visit. If you have a family of origin, which we all do, then you probably have some dysfunction there, right? All families have skeletons in their closet. And so today we're going to look at the life of a young man named Joseph who, like Bono, lived a fascinating life. But he also came from a family that was an absolute mess. In fact, his family is such a mess. If you're like, no, my family's a mess. Well, I think you're going to leave feeling pretty normal or feeling good about your family today because this family is, is pretty unique, okay? Now, when you hear me say Joseph, you might think, well, are we talking about Joseph, the father of Jesus, the earthly father of Jesus? No, that's not this Joseph. This Joseph was born a few thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And let me tell you a little something about his family just so you can understand the baseline. 
He had a father named Jacob, who also goes by the name Israel. He had a mother named Rachel. You'll learn about her next week. And he had a little brother named Benjamin. So far, sounds pretty normal. He also had three stepmoms, one of which was his mother's sister. Okay, yeah, so you're like, oh, that's weird. It is weird. And he had 10 older stepbrothers. That's his family. That's what he grew up in, okay? Now, you've probably heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If you're living with four mamas and 12 boys, ain't nobody ever happy ever, 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 ever. So that's his, that's his family. This is, this is baseline. This is where he begins. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Genesis 37, we're going to learn more about his life today. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We've got all the verses that you need up here on the screen. Let's jump into Genesis 37, verse 2. It says this, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Now remember, Jacob is his father, Joseph's father. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. You might think, well, who are they? They're just two of Joseph's stepmoms. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now there's a couple of details here. We learn that Joseph is 17. My oldest son, Jude, turned 17 yesterday. He's a junior in high school. So if you need like a frame of reference, think junior in high school. And we learn that he's working it alongside his brothers out in the field. And he brought them, he brought his dad a bad report. And at first you might think he was a tattletale like all little brothers. Yeah, but there might be a little bit more to it than that. Kent Hughes notes that in the original Hebrew, the word for bad report is always used throughout scripture in a negative way, as in someone that gave an untrue report. Can you imagine a little brother that would make up a story about his brothers to get them in trouble? Joseph, he's like the rest of us, right? He's a tattletale. He's making up stories to get his brothers in extra trouble, but that's not all. Look at verse three. Now, Israel or Jacob, these are the same people. These are Joseph's dad. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. How many sons did he have? He had 12, and Joseph was his favorite. So you might think, well, what made him the favorite? What would make someone the favorite? Is he the oldest? No. Was he the youngest? No. He's number 11 of 12. Why was he the favorite? Well, the answer is simple and complicated. He's the favorite because he was the firstborn son of his dad's favorite wife. I think it's a good thing to have a favorite wife. I've had a favorite wife for 22 years. We just celebrated our anniversary last month. She's also my only wife, okay? Which is the way that God intends for marriage to work. One man and one woman married for life. Jacob had four of them. Things were complicated. And on top of that, he didn't just have a favorite wife. He had a favorite son. Now, by show of hands, participate with me here. How many of you think it's a good idea for parents and grandparents to play favorites? If you raise your hand, you probably thought you were the favorite. Oh, I saw a hand. You probably think you're the favorite. By show of hands, how many of you think your grandparents and parents played favorites? You probably weren't the favorite. We can help you with some counseling, okay? Like, I'm just telling you. Look, we laugh. Families are complicated. But look, if you don't have kids yet, or if you do have kids and you don't know this, it's just never a good idea to play favorites. But Jacob, he didn't learn that lesson. He wanted to play favorites. But that's just the beginning. There's so much more to this. So look back at verse three. Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been bored to him in his old age, and he gave him an ornate robe. Now this ornate robe is where we get the sticker for this week's story. They're available in the lobby out there if you want to grab one, okay? And throughout history, people have thought for some reason that this was probably a multicolor rainbowed coat. 
It might have been. I couldn't find any research that says that that's what it was. But what we do know is it was probably a coat or a tunic that would have gone down to his wrist, down to his ankles, and it would have been a status symbol. If you wore this coat, it was to let everyone know you were special. In this instance, you're your dad's favorite, and you're going to get the lion's share of dad's inheritance over all the rest of your brothers. Now, it's back to school season, so let's just put this in our context. Imagine that you took your kids or grandkids out for back to school shopping and you're like, hey, you're my favorite. Here's a brand new pair of Jordans. The rest of you were going to Goodwill. How's that going to go? It's not going to go well. You don't do that. But that's what, that's what his dad did. And so over time, Joseph's, I'm sorry, Jacob's favoritism coupled with Joseph's immaturity in that coat drove his brothers crazy. It wasn't good. Look at verse four. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and they could not speak a kind word to him. You don't say. No surprise there. But here's what's worse. Joseph starts having a series of dreams. Now, and he has these dreams on several occasions that his family, they're all going to bow down and worship him. It is not bad to have a dream like that. How you share it, you might want to think about So instead of like going to his dad and saying, hey, dad, I'm having these dreams. What do you think this means? He goes to the breakfast table wearing his big coat. And he's like, guess what, everybody? I had a dream. I was wearing this coat and all of you bowed down and worship me. That's probably going to happen someday. How do you think his brothers responded? They wanted to kill him, literally. Like they were coming up with plots to kill him and they were going to have their chance by the end of Genesis 37. So end of Genesis 37, all the boys go off to 10 sheep out in the field And Joseph's dad says to him, hey, I want you to go check up on your brothers. Bring a report back for me. Good idea, dad, right? So here's the thing. They're 60 miles. When Joseph finds his brothers, they're 60 miles away from home. They're way outside of dad's safety bubble for Joseph. And when they see him in the distance, they say, here comes that dreamer with that stupid coat. Let's take him out. And they come up, they literally come up with a plan to throw him in a pit, a cistern, and they're going to leave him to die by starvation or by whatever means possible. And that's exactly what they did. They tore his coat off, they throw him in the pit, and then they sit down to eat lunch. You ever had a weird lunch meeting? That's a weird lunch meeting. So he's in the pit and one of his brothers says, this just doesn't sit right with me. He's our brother. We don't want to feel guilty for killing him. I did notice that there's some slave traders over there that we should sell him and that way we can make some money and we don't have to feel bad about it. And that's what they did. They sold their brother into slavery. Now that's a dysfunctional family. On top of that, they tore his coat. They dipped it in animal blood. They take it to their dad and said, we think Joseph's dead. And his dad believed it. And so they fake his death. They sell him into slavery. And I want you to imagine you're Joseph. Can you even imagine what that must feel like? Well, Genesis 39 tells us what happened next. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmael, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. How do you think you would feel? Just imagine the emotion of the moment. Do you think he felt betrayed? I do. How can my brothers do this to me? It's not my fault I'm dad's favorite. That's dad's decision. That's not my decision. Maybe he felt angry or bitter. I mean, he was young. He had his whole life ahead of him, but now his future looks hopeless. I I have to imagine he struggled with depression because he had all this freedom and now he's going to be forced to live as a slave. If I were him, I'd feel homesick. 
with every moment, every step, every movement, you're being taken further and further away from home. I mean, that's just a distant dream. You're not going to go back there. Here's one. Do you think he felt forgotten by his brothers, by his family? Is anybody going to come look for me? Maybe he felt forgotten by God. I mean, I think I would struggle to feel forgotten by God. I mean, where is God in all this? Why wouldn't God protect him? Well, according to the writer of Genesis, God was very aware of his situation. Look at Genesis 39.2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, since we're in church, you might think, well, of course God was with him. That's sure. I knew you were going to say that, but there's more to this than meets the eye, okay? The original Hebrew word for Lord here is the word Yahweh, as in the personal name of God. It is used, Yahweh is used eight times in Genesis 39. Four of those times, here's the big takeaway, four of those times it is used to say Yahweh, the personal God, was with Joseph. So in other words, here's what we learned. During the darkest time of Joseph's young life, when nothing seemed to make sense, Yahweh, the personal covenant God of Joseph's ancestors, he was near, he was close, he was at work in spite of all of Joseph's horrible circumstances. And throughout this part of scripture, honestly, we don't know much about Joseph and his relationship with God. But what we do learn is that as Yahweh was with Joseph, Joseph seems to learn to walk with and trust Yahweh. And if you keep reading, what you discover is that even though Joseph is forced to live as a slave, Yahweh is with him to the point that his new master, Potiphar, takes note. Look at Genesis 39, verse 3. When his master saw that the Lord Yahweh was with him and that the Lord Yahweh had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in, the, in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his entire household and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. So even though he's a slave, he actually gets to enjoy a little bit of independence and some respectability in Potiphar's house. He trusts him until... Potiphar's wife discovers that Joseph is young and very handsome, and she begs him, demands that he sleep with her. And he says, I am not going to do this and sin against my God. I'm not going to do this and sin against my master. And she falsely accuses him of rape. He is thrown into prison. So he goes from being a slave to being thrown in the king's prison, and his life just continues to spiral down from dad's favorite to a slave to a prisoner. But there was still a constant Genesis 39, verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord Yahweh was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all, of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. Verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord Yahweh was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. Now this poor guy, I mean, his life just continues to spiral downward. He can't seem to catch a break. But in spite of all of those challenges, Yahweh, the personal creator God, is with him and continues to lift him up no matter how much life drags him down. But after several years of serving in the prison, 
Yahweh is going to lift him to a place that he would have never anticipated or imagined being in. Through an unexpected series of events, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has this series of dreams that terrify him. And he's looking for someone to interpret them. And he hears through the grapevine that there's this man named Joseph down in the prison that can interpret dreams. Look at Genesis 41, 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. Then he, show, then he shaved and changed his clothes. He came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said that you, when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now, if you want to talk about some pressure, Joseph is standing in front of the most powerful man in the land. This man has the power to kill him or to set him free. And I want you to listen to Joseph's response. The task is, hey, can you translate my dreams? And Joseph in Genesis 41, 16 says, of course I can. Why did you wait so long to, to call me? What's in it for me? Maybe what you would expect him to say, maybe what we would want to say, but look at what he actually says. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, this is gutsy in so many different ways. He puts his faith in Yahweh on display, but in, in Egypt, they worshiped over 2,000 gods and goddesses. Pharaoh could be like, I don't care. So he puts his faith on display, and at some point in time, he learned that Yahweh, the Lord that was with him as a slave and then as a prisoner, only Yahweh could give him the wisdom and discernment he was going to need to interpret these dreams. And with the Lord's help, Joseph explains the dreams. He says, hey, here's what your dreams mean. According to God, there's going to be seven years of favor in Egypt. The crops are going to be huge. And then it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. So he interprets the dream, but then he goes one step further and says, I've got a plan. Here's what you should do. You should find, you should appoint the most wise and discerning man to oversee the collection of food during these years of plenty so that there's plenty of food when there is no food available from the land. And listen to Pharaoh's response in Genesis 30, uh, 41, 37. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God. Now don't miss this. Pharaoh doesn't just realize that Joseph's God, Yahweh, is with him. Pharaoh makes a mental note that says, apparently Joseph's God, Yahweh, is alive inside of him. Look at Genesis 41, 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there's no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Now that is a pretty significant change in circumstance, wouldn't you say? from a slave to a prisoner to now second in command. This is crazy. Look at Genesis 41, 46. This is important. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, how old was he when we met him? He's 17. Now he's 30. You don't have to be a mathlete to figure that out. That's 13 years. 13 years have passed. He spent 13 years of his life as a slave and as a prisoner, and now he's elevated just below Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, if you, you could stop there and think, that's amazing, but that's not the end of his story. His story is getting ready to get more interesting. The writer of Genesis tells us that Pharaoh's dreams begin to come true. There's seven years of plenty, and then they're followed by the seven-year famine, and two years into the famine, something happens that Joseph could have never, ever, ever anticipated. 
his 10 older brothers come stumbling through the door and they're begging for food for themselves and for their family and for their father. Look at Genesis 42, 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And look at verse 9. Then he remembered the dreams that he had had about them. Now, if you add up the timestamps here, here's what's interesting. We know that Joseph would have been somewhere around 39 to 40 years old. So do the math. Been about 23 years. 23 years ago, these guys had faked his death. 23 years ago, these guys had sold him in to slavery and now they're helpless and they're hungry and they're begging. And they don't know that the man that they're begging is the guy that they have tortured when he was younger. And remember the dream he had when he was 17? What was the dream? They would all come and bow down and honor him. It's being fulfilled right in front of Joseph. Now, I want you to imagine you're Joseph. You're second in command. You are powerful. And the people that have wrecked your life, they have ruined your past. They are bowing down in front of you. What would you want to do to them? Would you want to seek revenge? You know what? Don't, think that, don't imagine that you're Joseph. Just imagine that you're you. Imagine that there's somebody that's hurt you. Somebody that has caused you pain in the past. Somebody that was a big speed bump in your life. Maybe it was a boss that fired you or passed over you for a promotion. Maybe it was a bully to you or your children, a coach who didn't play you or one of your kids. Maybe it was a spouse that left, a parent that neglected you. Everybody got your someone or your someones. We all have them. Now, think of all the ways you've wanted to seek revenge against them. I mean, there's so many ways you can retaliate. You might be able to retaliate legally and sue them. You could retaliate verbally and light them up. You could retaliate physically against them. You could retaliate relationally. You could turn everyone against them so everyone's on your side and now they're on the outside. Or here's a fun one. You can just pretend they're dead and you can just go on with your life. Now, I don't know if any of those thoughts have ever crossed your mind, but this is the situation that Joseph finds himself in. And if you go and read through the story for yourself, what you discover is this was a really emotional, painfully emotional process for Joseph. But eventually, he feels that the best thing that he can do is to reveal his true identity to his brothers. And so he does. Genesis 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father Jacob still living? Listen to this. But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Yeah, I bet they were. I mean, that's a pretty terrifying place to be in. Joseph has all the power. He can do anything he wants, any kind of revenge he wants to get right in front of him. 45 verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt, just in case you forgot. Verse 5, and now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me there because it was to save lives that God sent me here. 
Verse six, for two years, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there's gonna be no more plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save lives by a great deliverance. 23 years of pent up anger and frustration and bitterness. Joseph could have sold them into slavery. They they could have been his personal slaves. He could have imprisoned them for fun so they had to experience what he experienced in the dungeon. He could have humiliated them. He could have tortured them. He could have killed them. But after 23 years of suffering, Joseph had come to a realization. Yahweh, the same God who was with him in the prison, was now with him in the palace. And Joseph had come to understand that God used this long road of suffering to serve as a very unlikely pathway to save Joseph, to save his entire family and to accomplish God's purposes in the end. Now, if you keep reading through Joseph's story, and I, I hope you do, Genesis 37 through 50, go read it this week. He is reunited with his father, Jacob, and it's super emotional. Dad thought the son was dead. Now they're celebrating and the whole family, Jacob and all of his sons and all of their kids and all of their wives, all 70 of them, they come and they live in Egypt under the care of Joseph. And it's a wonderful thing. They're able to thrive, but eventually Jacob dies and the older brothers panic because they think this is it. Dad's gone. There's nothing left to save us. Look at Joseph's response. Genesis 50 verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Listen to this. You intended to harm me but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So for the second time, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So twice he says, don't be afraid. He says, you have my word. I'm gonna take care of you and your children for the future generations. And all that's great. But the most important thing he teaches them is that Yahweh, the personal God of their ancestors, was always with me. You meant to harm me. You meant this for evil. He has used this for, your, for my good, for your good, for our good, for the future good of our family, and to accomplish his purposes. Now, that is a fascinating life story. That would make a great prime special, a great documentary. And there's so many things that we can pull, all these different lessons we could pull out of it. I think it's tempting when we read this to think, well, the lesson must be that God's going to use all of our suffering to eventually put us at a place where we're going to be in charge and we'll have a decision to make against the people that have hurt us. I don't think that's, that's not what it is. There's a lesson about forgiveness here, which is pretty amazing. I mean, of all the amazing things in his life, the fact that he was able to forgive his brothers is fascinating. But the biggest lesson is that through it all, Yahweh was with him. And so that means for us to walk away, to look at our life and realize Yahweh, the personal God of creation, is with us no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter what we experience. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you, for me, there's lots of times when it's really hard to see Yahweh. There's lots of times when it seems impossible to hear his voice. There's times when it's hard to feel his presence, or to believe that he even knows or cares that I am alive. I'm going to guess many of you have felt a lot of those same things. He doesn't seem close and personal 
but he is. We learn this in this story. And just like Joseph, our response is back to him in faith. Our response is to pray and say, would you just show me where you are and teach me to follow you no matter what happens, whether life is spiraling down or holding still or being elevated, teach me to walk with you. Uh, A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to sit with a lady in our church family. Um, I had heard parts of her life story, but they sounded a little too great. Like I, I, I had to verify them. And so she agreed to share her story with me. She said, I could share it with all of you. She just asked that I not share her name. When she was 10 years old, she's living at home with her mom and her stepdad. She's swimming in the pool in their backyard. And her stepdad comes out and tries to drown her at 10 years old in the pool. She struggles away to get away from him, gets out of the pool, goes to escape. They have a chain link fence in their yard. He has chained the fence shut. Her only escape is to climb up and over the fence and to run to the neighbor's house. And she does. And they take her in and they keep her safe. But sadly, a day or two later, she had to go back home. She and her sister had to go back home and live in that home with her mom and her stepdad. Now, can you imagine how traumatic that is? Now, thankfully, a few years later, and as a teenager, she becomes a follower of Jesus. And she begins to experience healing that only Jesus can provide. But she grows up and she starts to share little bits and pieces of her story with her adult friends. And there's this one friend that said, I really think that you should, you should pray and ask God where he was in all of that. And she said, no way. I don't want to relive a moment of it. I don't ever want to go back there. And she said, I, I just, I think you should pray and, and ask him. And so she re- refused. And I don't blame her. I don't blame her at all. Well, one day she's driving and I I don't understand the the whole part of this, but like the traffic pattern had changed and like there were roads that were closed and she literally was gonna have to drive past this neighborhood. And she said she felt God saying, come here, I wanna show you something. And so she gripped the steering wheel really tight and she started praying a prayer over and over again. And this is the prayer. Okay, God, I'm gonna need you to show me where you were and not where you weren't. You're going to have to show me where you were and not where you weren't. And she said, Jerry, the closer I got to the neighborhood, like tears started to come up. And I had to like, I was weeping and I had to pray this prayer really loud because I was fighting every instinct in my body to go back. And she pulls into the neighborhood and all of a sudden God reveals something that she had never noticed before. He said, oh, this, remember this, the people that lived here, they were the people that had you over for dinner all the time you and your sister. And remember this house over here, these are the people, you stayed the night with them frequently. They took great care of you. And this is the house of the people that took you and your sister to church every Sunday. And oh, don't forget the house of the lady, the young mom with the little boy who invited you to come and babysit their son so that you could be out of your house. Like somehow this young mom knew that this young girl needed to be away from her home. God shows her all of this and says, my presence has always been with you. And then he says, he start, she starts to realize they were all Christians. They're all following Jesus. They're just living out his command to love their neighbor. And she was just overwhelmed with emotion, as you can imagine. But then he said, we're not done. I, I need you to go past your house. And she said, Jerry, I did not want to go past that house. So I just gripped the steering wheel and said, okay, God, over and over. God, show me where you were, not where you weren't. Show me where you were, not where you weren't. And she said she was just basically yelling because she was trying to control her body. And she pulls up and God showed her something she had never seen before. Their yard was the only yard 
with a chain link fence. She said, everybody else either had like a tall wooden privacy fence or no fence at all. And she might think, well, why does that matter? God said, when you were 10, your little feet could fit in that chain link fence perfectly to get you up and over in a way. I've never left you. I was with you through your friends. I was with you through the fence. I love you. Now, you would expect a lady like this to be really bitter towards God and say, but yeah, why couldn't you stop? If you were to talk to this lady, you know what she said to me over and over again? Praise God. He protected me. He protected my sister. She has a thriving relationship with Jesus. As we look at Joseph's story and learn that Yahweh was always with him, and we look at this story of this lady in our church family who learned to pray a really bold prayer, show me where you were, not where you weren't. I think maybe the, our best response is to stop and say, okay, Yahweh, will you show me where you are? Will you show me where you were so I know how to walk with you? So I wanna give you 60 seconds. I'm gonna ask you to do something. You don't have to do this. I wanna invite you to close your eyes and just pray that prayer. Think through your past, think through your present and say, Yahweh, will you show me where you were, not where you weren't? I don't know, I don't know what your situation is. I don't need to know, but here's what you need to know. Don't listen to Satan's lie to say, oh, well, your situation doesn't matter as much as the, it's your situation. And honestly, truthfully, this is just the beginning of that process. Would you be willing, would you be brave enough to start praying that prayer? Maybe it was when you lost a loved one or some trouble you had at work, or I don't know. Yahweh, show me where you were, now where you weren't. And I'm gonna guess he's gonna show you He's gonna show you, he's gonna reveal his goodness to you. Now, speaking of God's goodness, there is one really important takeaway from Joseph's story that we cannot afford to rush past. There's lots of things you can learn about his story, but the most important part of his story is that Joseph's story points us directly to Jesus. There are so many similarities. Jesus was loved, is loved by his heavenly father, just like Joseph is, was Joseph was rejected by his brothers. Jesus was too. Joseph was sold. So was Jesus. Here's one. Joseph was thrown into a pit and left for dead, brought out of the pit, taken to a place of power, and he was able to forgive his brothers. Jesus died on a cross. They laid his body in a tomb. He rose from the dead, and he is currently seated at the right hand of God and offering forgiveness to all mankind for anyone that would put their faith in him. Joseph suffered, Jesus suffered. It's all meant to point us to the coming Messiah who was gonna be revealed through Jacob's family. It was a promise of God. And so as we wrap up, we're gonna sing a song about the good plans that God has for us, but I wanna invite you to respond in a few different ways. Maybe you need to respond by meeting our prayer team over here and praying through a situation in life. 
Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. Right now would be a good time to come forward and say, what does that look like? I wanna invite you to respond to Yahweh through worship or through prayer. Would you stand and worship with us?